Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening at the beginning of a new week. Thank you for your company. Remember to tell your family and friends, though, how to download ADH TV because those are too difficult. Look, you just search ADH, they can, on their Apple TV app store. Now, if I can do it, everyone could do it. Or on the Google Play store. And they can watch me live and on demand, and it's for free. Now, if you prefer to listen in the car, you can listen to the full episode as a podcast. Just search Alan Jones on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Well, as you know, rain everywhere. And here were the tabloids, remember the other week, claiming that the El Nino weather pattern was officially over? More proof that you shouldn't always believe what you read. SES volunteers responded to more than 900 calls for help across the South Coast, Illawarra and Southern Highlands throughout the weekend. Some of the largest falls in the state were recorded in those regions in the 24 hours to Sunday morning. At least 368 millimetres that's about 14 inches at Brogers Creek near Berry, and 298 millimetres recorded at Darks Forest, which is about 12 inches. However, I've got a farm in the Southern Highlands. To 10 a.m. this morning, we've had 521 millimetres. That's over 20 inches, over half a metre since Friday night. The Bureau of Meteorology says it's investigating whether a tornado or a water sprout tore through parts of the Illawarra over the weekend destroying dozens of roofs north of Wollongong. There are major flood warnings in place for the Nepean, Hawkesbury and Colo rivers in New South Wales. Hazardous surf conditions are also expected to continue. That makes activities such as swimming, surfing and rock fishing very dangerous. Stay away. Warragamba Dam is spilling at a rate that exceeds that from the floods earlier in the year. The winds have been terrifying. I was really swept off my feet last night, I've got to tell you. Amazing. Tonight, we'll speak with the New South Wales Labor State MP for Lismore, Janelle Saffin. She is a trooper. The poor people of Lismore are being totally neglected by the Perrottet government. Admittedly, the Premier has visited often, but the relief never seems to arrive. Now, reports suggest that many of the leaders in the New South Wales government are off overseas. While the state's in chaos, trains and union strikes, teacher strikes, floods, businesses crippled by labour shortages. I'm wondering whether this lot haven't checked out of governing. Janelle Saffin will join me and what she will reveal will make your blood boil. New information from the Lismore floods early this year reveal a series of bureaucratic blunders. The first of these errors was the denial of a $100,000 grant for Lismore City Council to upgrade their flood warning systems. It's also been revealed that the SES knew the destructive weather system could hit in the middle of the night, but failed to inform residents. Yet we've got this overfunded bureaucracy, Resilience New South Wales, headed by the bloke who's always in a crisp shirt, suit and tie, Shane Fitzsimmons. He enjoys a huge salary and the outfit's got a budget of over $700 million. As One Nation MP Rod Roberts claimed, Resilience New South Wales processed only 215 grant applications out of more than 2,250 received by late May. Why did this mob exist? Another Berejiklian captain's pit? Shut them down and let Janelle Saffin coordinate the recovery and give the Resilience New South Wales budget to the people of Lismore. Resilience means to recover quickly from difficulties. They're not only misnamed, but bureaucratically useless. What do you think? Email me, Jones at adh.tv. Look, I raised this issue last week, which may be the reason for the headlines that have subsequently followed. And I quote the headlines, wanted workers urgently. Another, workplaces struggle for staff. Another, boosting workforce would help economic momentum. Another, staffing crisis as flu weighs on the nation, unquote. Meeting international leaders, lots of photo shoots, visiting Kiev, and telling the world that Australia will lead the energy transition to zero emissions and that we're part of the fight for freedom around the world. A lot of this stuff is empty rhetoric, platitudinous nonsense. It is time the new government got down to work. It's one thing to argue that the Albanese government's goal is to focus on training Australians to fill vacancies. 
but immediate action is needed to avoid productive enterprises being held back by a lack of workers. Even worse, being shut down. There is no evidence of an orderly program facilitating urgently needed skilled migration. Australia's staffing shortages worsened to the point that almost half a million jobs are going begging. The number of vacant positions is nearly equal to the number of Australians unemployed. Business is crying out for federal and state governments to make it easier to bring in foreign workers. In May, the number of job vacancies, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, reached 480,000 in May. Jobs available. A jump of 14% since February and more than double pre-pandemic levels of about 225,000. Job vacancies. There are current, currently 548,000 people who declare themselves as jobless, but many of those people are unemployable. Common sense will tell you that a shortage of workers puts a handbrake on business, but it's worse than that. As we've seen with airports, customers face long waits when traveling, not enough staff. As we've seen with restaurants and cafes, they're closed when they'd normally be open, not enough staff. As we see with building projects, you can't employ hundreds of workers on a building project if you can't find a surveyor. We keep talking about post-pandemic recovery. That sounds fine. But employers can't find staff. It's as simple as that, and it's at every level of employment. Closing international and domestic borders, flattened migration, and labour mobility. West Australia, for example, had the tightest border controls of all Australian states. No surprise that there are 40% more job vacancies in WA than there are officially unemployed West Australians. A tighter labour market than during the mining boom. This is absurd. What's even more absurd is that there's no evidence that the new government is doing anything about it. This is a labour and skills crisis. The workplace shortages are chronic and either the employer tries to extend the working hours for existing employees or he shuts the door. Jim Chalmers, the new treasurer, recently said, and I quote, we have to deal with issues around the resilience of supply chains. We have to deal with labour movement, labour mobility, labour shortages. We have to deal with that. Treasurer, stop stating the bleeding obvious and tell us what you're going to do. The retail industry has had the highest increase in vacancies of any industry. It's calling for urgent federal and state action to ease the pressure on employers. Now, I've raised on this program on more than one occasion that we should let older workers work more without losing their pension. Thankfully, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, recently said, change the rules about how much a pensioner can earn before having their payments reduced. A proposal, I might add, that was considered by the former government and ignored. But it's simpler than that. There are more than 400,000 people over the age of 65 who could return to the nation's workforce if we let older Australians work without losing benefits. Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, says that will be discussed at the National Employment Summit before October's budget. Treasurer, it's July. Thousands of businesses will go broke between now and October if nothing's done. Here is an obvious policy to employ people who are available, reliable, committed and skilled, but they won't re-enter the workforce because their income will affect their pension entitlement. Can't the Prime Minister or the Treasurer say, we're not going to squander skilled and committed Australians who are available now, more than 400,000 pensioners, who could help add to the nation's productivity. But we're burdened with stupid rules and it seems a new government which wants to talk a lot but so far has done nothing. Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, says, we have to weigh up all these ideas and where we can get the best bang for our buck. Treasurer, stop the jargon. This would cost the nation nothing. Take the pensioner. Let him keep the pension. Let him take a job. That increases productivity. Let him take a salary on which he's taxed. That increases government revenue. What the hell's the delay? And as I said last week, smarten up the visa process. Someone seeking an SC482 temporary visa is someone who is skilled, whom an employer can bring in if there isn't an appropriate Australian worker, except it can take up to 15 months to process. And a short-term 
temporary skilled visa takes 83 days to finalise. As I've said many times, and I'll say it again, the problems we face as a nation are politician and policy induced. They can't just say that which is simple. Bring the pensioners back into the workforce and do whatever is needed to cut the ridiculous delays in visa applications. To the new government, I say simply, stop talking and travelling and do something. Well, it is time a microscope was put over the behaviour of state governments. In New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet made a great start, articulating liberal values of freedom, lower taxes, eliminating waste, etc. But sadly, in a government dominated by the lefties, it's been downhill ever since. So we had a budget a couple of weeks ago. The thorough and relentless One Nation leader, Mark Latham, delivered an outstanding speech on the budget, or as it's called, the Appropriation Bill, which deserves infinitely more coverage than it received because this affects every citizen of New South Wales who's swimming in government debt, state debt piled on federal debt. But Mark Latham's opening remarks in his speech to the budget are arresting when he said this, quote, how many times in the history of parliamentary democracy has the government broken its own fiscal laws? For this government, it's not once, not twice, but three times, 2019-20, 2021 and 21, and now 2021-22. Argued Mark Latham, quote, its Fiscal Responsibility Act, passed in 2012, was a no-excuse piece of legislation. No matter the floods, bushfires or viruses, Mike Baird gave a guarantee of annual outlays below long-term average expenses growth. He defined fiscal responsibility around that key test. It was not just a test, but as Mark Latham said, law, L-A-W, law argued Mark Latham, a government that can no longer manage its budget according to its own laws is a government which has lost legitimacy. He said, given the Treasurer's pre-election $27 billion spending spree, a fourth breach seems certain. Thank goodness Mark Latham's applying proper scrutiny to what I said at the time was a budget speech to the Parliament that bore a striking resemblance to a grade 11 a grade 11 school essay. Mark joins us. Mark, thank you for your time. Uh, where are we though, Mark, in proper analysis when everywhere we read in the last week, we were told that the Barilaro affair took attention away from this excellent state budget. Who is deceiving whom? Well, well I don't know who's saying it's excellent. Um, the past financial year had a spending increase of 26.5%, Alan. And you look through the pages of Australian political and budgetary history, the only um, comparable uh, level of extravagance that I can find was the Whitlam government's budget in 1974. And no one thought, a budget effectively authored by Jim Cairns at the time, that their spending increase of 24.5% would ever be exceeded. But it has been by Matt Keane, a supposedly part of a Liberal National Party government, 26.5% increase. So, that um, breach of the law that you mentioned under the Fiscal Responsibility Act, they're not even getting close, Alan. You know, they're not within a bull's roar of meeting the cap on expenditure increases um, because the long-term revenue increase in New South Wales is about 6%. So they're 20% over, 20% over, and Keane's extravagance uh, running into the next election, of course, means there'll be a fourth breach in a row and I think this is a major problem for the Liberal Party. People don't recognise them anymore. The, the Howard Costello legacy of a surplus budgets paying down debt has been lost. And people sort of say, well, if you want a 26% spending increase and, and $182 billion gross debt in New yes. South Wales, not even Labor could spend that much. No. So they don't recognise the Liberal Party anymore. And I think this is a big reason why the Morrison government lost. And I think the Perrottet government is headed towards defeat. Yeah. How does it return to surplus in three years? No, well, that's impossible. I mean, yeah. it's a nonsense. And, and the Treasury officials who put these numbers in the document ought to hang their heads in shame. They, they have outed themselves as political operatives because the idea that one year you're going to get a, a 26.5% increase in outlays and the next financial year it's going to come down by 5% is, is just fanciful. No one... Uh, would believe that. And you've only got to look at what Keane has done. We've had six months of Keaneism, Matt Keane is Treasurer in New South Wales, and the budget position has deteriorated 
by nearly $12 billion. And, Alan, the main problem they've got, they just, they've given up on making any savings. You'd yes. think in a $95 billion budget you'd find plenty of efficiency gains. I, I could find plenty um, uh, just in, 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 you know, a few hours of uh, looking at the document. Um, but Keane, in that six months that he's been Treasurer, has made net savings on the budget of just $32, $32 million. That's him for so million. So $25 million to put yeah. a flagpole on the Harbour Bridge. Yeah. You know, the savings barely pay for the flagpole. Amazing, isn't it? Just clarify this key point, because I don't think the public understand. The net debt is $115 billion, B for billion. Now, you've called this Keynes fiscal carnage. How else can you describe it? Well, $115 billion net debt in New South Wales, a trillion dollars racked up by the Morrison-Frydenberg budgets. Um, you know, my great-great-grandkids will be paying this off yeah. if they're lucky. Um, so the, the, the level of extravagance is just off the radar. Uh, it can't be sustained under fiscal any decent fiscal policy because the truth at the moment, Alan, is the, the great economic... Um, enemy of the Australian people is inflation, which is driving up interest rates. And if you want to bring inflation down, you don't go for a big deficit and debt budgets. You've got to bring them back into surplus. You've got to make cost savings. You've got to show restraint uh, to try and have a positive impact in bringing down inflation. So it runs counter to the economic fundamentals. It's all about the next election. And I think fundamentally, the Perrottet-Keene government has just given up on the, uh, on the idea of making savings or believing that expenditure reductions are actually a good thing. And of course, as you say, it's easy to spend other people's money, especially when you don't care how it's spent. I mean, you made reference to the budget paper number one and the policy changes of the Perrottet government. Last year's budget, you said it had 145 policy changes and not a single spending cut. Now, every one of those policy changes represents more money. Yeah, and, uh, and the budget that Keane delivered is, um, is just as bad, really. Uh, 217 policy changes. So these are uh, optional, uh, voluntary alterations that the government has made to its budgetary uh, measures. And of those 217 policy changes, um, they've only got three savings measures. So the total there over the last two years has been 362 policy changes for just three savings measures. One in 120 of their policy changes is actually a saving. 119 of them go the yep. other way. And so this level of profligacy is just unsustainable. You, uh, made, New South Wales has lost I mean, you its make, uh, AAA credit rating through S&P and, and, and that'll get worse. Sorry to interrupt you there, but I just wanted to repeat what you said in that speech. Mark Latham said of those statistics that he just cited to you, there is no precedent in Australian politics for this level of extravagance and slothful policy making. Do they get away with this stuff? Well, they shouldn't. Um, you know, I was quite glad to see the, the, the men's Labor opposition under their excellent shadow treasurer, Daniel Mookie, talking about restraint and saying Labor wouldn't spend this much. So that's one encouraging thing. Whether they live up to that, you really just don't know. But, Alan, just to put it in perspective, you mentioned the $115 billion of net debt. The interest rate that New South Wales government will pay to service its debt now will be over $6 billion. That's more than we spend on the TAFE system in New South Wales, more than we spend on, on New South Wales police service. So uh, when you get to a point where your interest is over $6 billion to service your debt, it just shows how bad off Absolutely. the taxpayer is, the long-suffering taxpayer and of course he, uh, is really uh, copying it under this government. And Matt Keane presents himself as the greatest. Everywhere you look, he's there. He's got an opinion on everything. But as you said in the speech... Yes, he is the greatest spender, the greatest public debt accumulator, the greatest waste of taxpayers' money in New South Wales history. So how will anyone down the track, Mark, be able to address the structural problems that have now been built into this extravagant spending? Well, the structural problem is because, foolishly, Perrottet and Keane are taking on the funding of federal responsibilities. They're spending $10 billion on green energy programs, supposedly to bring down the globe, the globe's temperature under climate change. Well, uh, climate change is obviously a, an international issue. It shouldn't be discharged by a provincial government. It should be the Australian government that does something, if anything at all. That's so they're spending billion. $10 billion on yeah. green energy that's yeah. unnecessary. 
They're, they're now taking over the federal responsibility of fee relief for long-day childcare and also subsidising the construction of childcare centres, which has always been done out of Canberra. So these are major structural impediments that have been built into the New South Wales government. And, and Alan, you'd have to fear they'll never be removed. No, quite. I mean, $800 million, what was that for? Uh, in, in, in an Aboriginal program, handing it over to the activist who wrecked the Walgett Community College? Well, this is under the banner of self-determination. You might as well wash the money down the drain. Uh, self-determination is a nice slogan, but in practice, they handed the money over to someone who'd been in charge of Walgett Community College, the high school at Walgett in Western New million. South Wales where families tragically are leaving Walgett to get away from the school, which is run down by chaos and violence. And some of the parents, including Indigenous, are busing their children to Lightning Ridge an hour away to get away from the violence at Walgett. Now, self-determination should only operate if there's a guarantee that the taxpayers' money, where people work very hard to pay that money, uh, can be spent efficiently rather than the feel-good politics of just handing it over and effectively watching it go down the drain. Mm. And then hundreds of millions of dollars on arts, culture and multicultural responsibilities. They're normally discharged out of Canberra. Yeah, this is the huge structural problem. Uh, once you start doing these things, um, it's very hard and, and uh, you yeah. know, there's goodies handed out to the yeah. electorate. Uh, there's not many politicians uh, who reverse that. Uh, but we need to reverse uh, this level of, yes. well, it's kind of um, voluntary cost shifting. The normal debate is that states would complain, oh, the federal government's shifting all its costs onto us. Keen has put his hand up. He's kamikaze keen. Yeah, we'll do it. He's volunteered we'll get hairs to on fund our the Canberra yep. commitments. And, and this will take <laughs> decades, if ever, to get them out of the budget. And those household subsidy programs that aren't means tested. Yeah, there's uh, some 27 of them that haven't got a means test. So all these vouchers you hear about, vouchers for this, that and the other thing in New South Wales, millionaires qualify for them, which is plainly wrong. That's an obvious area of cost savings to have means mm. testing in place. And why have we got scores and scores of these handouts yeah, yeah. Uh, to people? We've well, been just... through in Australia, with one uh, understandable exception, um, uh, 30 years of economic growth. A lot of people have done okay, some are battling. But uh, these uh, programs need to be targeted mm. rather than the extravagance of, of Macquarie Street becoming sort of a, a, a transfer payment uh, organisation. Just, just before you go, it is a vote-buying document. Will it buy votes? Well, no, I don't think it does buy votes for the reason that people aren't silly. They don't recognise today's Liberal Party. You hear lots of talk about the modern Liberal or the, 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 the woke Liberal in tune with values on the North Shore of Sydney. People have their strongest impression, uh, the most favourable impression, I can say this from personal experience, their most favourable impression of the Liberal Party from the Howard Costello legacy of surplus budgets paying down debt. And they don't recognise the Liberal Party. The Liberals used to stand for surplus budgets, Alan, and putting jobs ahead of the environment. Now it's the other way. They stand for big, big debt and deficit budgets and putting climate change concerns, where Australia really can't achieve anything, ahead of job creation. So when the electorate doesn't uh, recognise you, uh, of course, they go somewhere else. Why wouldn't Good they? Mark, you've done an outstanding job. It's a speech. Mark Latham, you can get that in the Hansard. Well worth reading his reply to the state budget. That ought to be front page of any responsible paper. It barely got a mention. Great to talk to you, Mark, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks very much, Alan. Not at all. Mark Latham, the leader of One Nation in the New South Wales Parliament. Look, before I talk about anything else, I want to give a shout out to the Australian rugby team, the Wallabies, who on Saturday in Perth were almost decimated before the match began. The gifted Quade Cooper injured in the warm-up. And then when the game started, calamity seemed to follow calamity. But the Wallabies narrowly got home against an England side that must surely put their coach, Eddie Jones, under real pressure to hold his job. Then there's Wimbledon and Kyrgios, a player gifted beyond description. But following his victory over the Greek Stefanos Tsitsipas on Saturday, Pat Cash, the 1987 Wimbledon champion, said that Kyrgios has dragged tennis to new depths. Said Pat Cash of Kyrgios, he has brought tennis to the lowest level I have seen as far as gamesmanship, cheating, manipulation, abuse, aggressive behaviour of umpires and linesmen. But do we blame Kyrgios or a Wimbledon championship that seems to allow its standards to be trashed. However, there's a 29-year-old Australian in the last 16, Jason Kubler. No publicity of this young fella. 
It was clear from an early age that this young man was the real deal. He was born in Brisbane to an Australian father and a Philippine-born mother. In 2009, this is how good he is, he became only the second player in history alongside the great Rafael Nadal to go through undefeated the World Youth Cup and the Junior Davis Cup. He was the number one junior in the world in 2010. But how do you de define suffering? Two words, Jason Kubler. Nick Kyrgios could take a leaf out of this bloke's book. He never complains. He spent the majority of his professional career in surgeries and hospitals with an hereditary knee condition that results in weakened meniscus around the joints. It was always said that if his body ever allowed him to be fully fit, he was as good as, good as anything in the world, except that since he came out of the junior ranks, his body has fallen to pieces. Five operations on his left knee and one on his right. A few years ago, he had 14 cents in his bank account, but he never complains. He's reached the fourth round at Wimbledon. The 29-year-old wins today and he goes to the quarters. The 29-year-old has guaranteed himself a payday of at least $337,000, almost half as much as he has made in his entire career. I must point out that if Alex de Menor beats a gifted Chilean in the round of 16 and Kyrgios beats a talented American, Kyrgios and de Menor will meet in the quarterfinals. If Wimbledon haven't already acted on Kyrgios's behaviour, that showdown between the two Australians could be something. If Jason Kubler can get over Taylor Fritz, he most probably will face Rafael Nadal. Taylor Fritz is the number one American, good player. But the Kubler story is one of the great success stories about confronting and overcoming adversity. Well, that said, and on an entirely different note, voting opened today in Papua New Guinea in a nation scarred by gender-based violence. The resource-rich but poverty-stricken nation with a 118-seat parliament has not a single woman in the parliament. In fact, in nearly 50 years since PNG gained independence, only seven women have secured a seat. Today, 3,500 candidates are seeking a seat in the 118-member parliament. 142 are women. Statistics on women in Papua New Guinea are alarming. 63% have been subject to physical, sexual or emotional violence, according to a survey four years ago. And listen to this, at least 70% of men and women agreed in that survey that a man would be justified in beating his wife if at least one of these circumstances were met, if she burnt food, argued, went out without telling her husband, refused sex or neglected her children. What hope the women have today must be measured against the fact that elections in Papua New Guinea can be dangerous. At the 2017 election, more than 200 voting-related killings were documented by monitors from the ANU. Women candidates are hard-pressed to get financing and voter intimidation and multiple voting are rife. Australia have sent more than 130 troops with transport aircraft to provide security for the vote and they'll assist the thousands of PNG police and troops around the country. Voting will take place because it's the nature of the country, remote areas will take place over 18 days. So the outcome won't be clear until next month, but the electoral roll is not up to date. So already the integrity of the election is under question. The Prime Minister James Marapi is fending off his predecessor, Peter O'Neill, to lead the nation for the next five years. But we're talking about a country which is ethnically diverse with more than 800 languages. Even at this stage in its evolution, PNG may be governed, but I've got to tell you, it's veritably ungovernable. Well, with all these floods seemingly everywhere, you will recall I spoke to Janelle Safin last month, the State Labor MP for the seat of Lismore, a woman who's done more to maintain some sort of morale for the people there than anyone in government. You might remember I told you that at the height of the flood in Lismore, Janelle and two friends were on the veranda of a home, her words, quote, hanging sort of on the rafters. But the water was coming up too quickly to stay inside. Janelle doesn't mind me saying that she's 67 and she said there were three of us and at some point it was swim or we go under. And I said, come on, we're in. And they dived in. Well, one of her staff has appeared in an inflatable canoe to rescue her. She was hanging onto a tire under a tree 
but said to the staffer, we're all right, go for her. A woman trapped in a house not far away and screaming. Well, parts of New South Wales are barely dry after the last deluge, but it's on again. A rain bomb and flash flooding for the last three days. A rain bomb indeed. I mentioned that in two and a half days of continuous torrential rain at my farm in the Southern Highlands, we had 20 inches of rain. That's over half a metre. You will recall that fellow called Flannery. Tim Flannery was made Australian of the Year in 2007 because he began the climate change hysteria. In 2005, he said Sydney's dams would be dry in as little as two years. Global warming was drying up the rains, he said. In 2008, he said the water problem was so severe for Adelaide, they would run out of water by 2009. In 2007, Flannery said cities such as Brisbane would never have dam filling rains again. Global warming, he said, had made the soil too hot. Quote, so even the rain that falls isn't actually going to fill our dams or river systems. Unbelievable stuff. For that 100% deception, he was made Australian of the Year. This woman I'm gonna to talk to in a minute is my Australian of the Year. In 2022, early July, rain has again smashed New South Wales. At least 40 evacuation orders across the state, thousands of people in the Illawarra, Western Sydney and the Hawkesbury and Nepean areas packed their bags on Sunday night. And it said the Hawkesbury, Nepean and George's rivers could rise higher than during the floods at North Richmond and Windsor in March and April. Warragamba Dam is spilling at a greater rate and is causing water levels, of course, to rise quickly. Australian Defence Force personnel have been focusing their efforts on Richmond as torrential rain imploded over the Hawkesbury, Nepean Valley. This has been called, rightly, a life-threatening emergency. The Federal Labor MP for Macquarie, Susan Templeton, a good local rep, said the water rose rapidly on Sunday, exhausting a flood-fatigued community forced to evacuate their homes for the third time this year. Well, one person who knows all about this is Janelle Saffin, and she joins me again from Lismore. Janelle, just before we go any further, is it true that the Lismore Council were denied a $100,000 grant from the state government to upgrade their weather forecasting systems? Look, that's true, Alan. And also with mitigation, our local council, Lismore and others, had sought money for mitigation, and I backed them in totally, and um, that wasn't forthcoming either. So we've really got to change what we do. Um, mitigation is the key, adaptation. We've just got to do all those things. But look, my heart goes out to the people in Sydney, Illawarra, Hunter, and even people up here who are still displaced and suffering. They're watching what's happening down there and expressing their concern to the people because <clears throat> we know how scary it is. We know how, um, you know, it's just so uncertain. Mm -hmm. And for me, there's two things. I hope that the SES at the higher levels have learnt some lessons out of what happened up here and what didn't happen and what they didn't do. And I fear that Resilience New South Wales, I fear that they haven't learnt any no, lessons. they're a waste of space. And I fear for Just people. come back to the SES, Janelle. Is it true mm -hmm. that the SES knew that the most destructive aspects of these floods would occur in the middle of the night and didn't tell the residents? I believe that, Alan. I believe that they knew and residents went to bed thinking the levee would be overtopped at a certain time in the morning, originally 6am. That all changed quickly, but I do believe that they knew and we weren't told. There's this whole argy-bargy about who tells who what, and we don't want to alarm people in case they all move and it doesn't come to pass. And I said, they, the SES have to tell us what might happen. We then have to act accordingly. And then if it doesn't happen, okay, it doesn't happen. And none of us complain. We go home, go back to our business, we're okay. What about this um, rental support payment that was supposed to be made, mm -hmm. $500 million or something there. The information I'm getting, people are writing to me saying that they're being told that they don't qualify because they need further documentation, but their, their mm -hmm. documentation possessions were swept away in the flood. 
Look, and it's clear if you know where they lived and their address and they've got some way of saying who they are, um, then it should be paid, yes. And a lot of things swept away in the flood. I mean, I lost a lot of stuff in the flood and it's only you'll think, oh, gee, where's that? And then you realise it's gone. And I offered to do statutory declarations. You know, I say to the departments, yep. I'll do these. I know these people and you've got a map of them. You can check where they lived and let it happen. I'll say about the rent assistance, it expired late in June. Yes. I said that's not good enough, but um, the New South Wales government have extended it till the end of the year. But, but so my understanding, my understanding is that only 20% of those people who've applied for that rental assistance have had their uh, applications approved. Look, that's true, Ellen. And it, it shouldn't be approved because you've got a lease agreement somewhere. And the government did relax a bit on that. First of all, they wanted a commercial agreement. I said that's nonsense, so they relaxed it. But just the fact you've been displaced wherever you are, wherever you're staying, unless you're put up in accommodation being paid for, you still need some money oh, to get by. Yes. You know, we're internally displaced people and you need to be right. cared for. It's not like we can go back within a week to the places. No. That's not happening. But the New South Wales government mm. talks about a $500 million flood assistance package. Now, you know that scene backwards. Have you seen evidence of $500 million? No, I haven't. And that $500 million, I say, will tell us exactly where it's gone, where it's going. And I just want to tell you a little bit about housing because I put something out about this today. And I said, we need a whole of housing reconstruction package for the Northern Rivers, particularly focused in Lismore, but Broadwater, Korokai, you know, South Moolumbah. The rent extended, so we got that. But I said that needs to be extended until people can go back home yes. or are rehoused. Yes. Temporary housing on their land until permanent solutions are found because it may be that we do the buybacks of their places yes. but let them be on their patch, you know, in a van or something more suitable. I said key involvement of community housing providers. There's a whole community housing providers in Australia. They're fantastic. They know how to do things on the smell of an oily rag and they've got some really good creative solutions that work economically as well. But are the, so are the bureaucrats, Janelle, sorry to interrupt you, but are the bureaucrats knocking yeah. you off here? I mean, this was a 16-week rental support program. You've had it extended. But my understanding is yep. there were almost 12,000 applications and 7,000 have been deemed ineligible. What happens to those people? Yeah, well, that's what we don't know. I mean, I do know some of them because they come to me and then when I go to the bureaucracy, I get most things through. But it shouldn't be like that. I shouldn't be the one micromanaging and no. I'm always appreciative. And so but this, woman, you, from, this but woman from Service New South Wales, Catherine Ellis, told that inquiry, the flood mm. inquiry, that applicants were given 28 days to provide documentation. I mean, do these people live in the real world? They lost their paperwork and their electronics in the floodwaters. No, and look, some of them were even told originally if you don't, uh, with business grants, if you don't uh, reply within 14 days, consider it closed. I said, that feels threatening to someone yes. who's traumatised, who's trying to get support. And I said, redesign your bloody forms. Yes. I'll redesign them <laughs> yeah, for you. Right. I'll bring in the primary school teachers, you know, <laughs> right. who know how to do this. <laughs> and, and don't start your don't start your form with, oh, what date did you were you flood affected? Like yes. duh, you know. Uh, I know. I said just tell us now. You know, so just tell us now, because I noticed the wall, our viewers are looking at that wall behind you there. Now, you've mm -hmm. shifted and you painted that and the paint's peeled because, eh? Is that yeah, it? That, the wall behind me, the paint. Yeah, yeah. and the paint peeled. Okay. Are we, there people in Lismore, where are they living? Yeah. Where Are they in tents? Are they in houses with no roofs? Look, they're in, they're in houses with no roofs or leaky roofs. They're in tents in their houses. They're in vans or cars or tents on their property. A woman came in today. She won't mind me saying I won't mention her name. She's gone to Glen Innes. That's a bit of a way away from Lismore. 
um, because she can stay with someone for a while, but she has to keep coming backward and forward to her place. And I know someone else who's gone out of town, got a pile of kids, sharing with someone, one lounge room and a bedroom, you know, with a whole pile of kids. But you know, so it's July. This was in February. Yep. How much longer is this I going know. to go on? Well, I come back to Resilience New South Wales. Oh. They... Look, the quicker they're wound up, good the, on you. You know, because I really feel for the people in Sydney if they're going to be unleashed on they, them. They, they've got a budget them. of seven hundred and seventy million, Janelle. Why don't they give you the seven hundred and seventy exactly. million? Give you the seven hundred and seventy right. million. You'll sort things out in Lismore. Absolutely, I would sit down with the. the I'd pull the seven mayors in you know, across the Northern Rivers, but in Lismore in particular where the need is huge, and I'd say, okay, what's our first priority? Let's do it. I know companies that build like small houses on your property. They can even go up and down in water. They're towable, so if anything happened, they can be moved away, all of that. I would have them on the property. Guess what Resilience New South Wales did? They said they would trial putting vans on people's property. And and, and Fitzsimmons has got a starched shirt and, you know, the tie and whatever, and we're nine till five job, they say. Well, look, Janelle, we run out of time. Just a quick word from you to those people who in the Hawkesbury and Apean area are suffering. What Mm -hmm. is your word to them? You've you've been through all this. Look, my word is um, support each other, back each other, back your community in, put your hand out to neighbours, and if you want to, reach out to us. Good We're here you. with Good. you. Hey, this woman's my Australian of the year. She's unbelievable. It's Janelle Saffin. She's the Labor MP for Lismore. We're going to keep in touch with you, Janelle, so we'll give it a couple of weeks and we'll come back and see if things haven't improved. Hopefully by that stage, someone will have woken up and given Resilience New South Wales, put them in the soup kitchens and let them find out what it's like to live with no roof over your head. Hey, great to talk. Hang in Thank there. Thank you, Alan. All right, Janelle. Great lady there. She is Janelle Saffin. Look, I talked earlier about chaos in the workforce. The new definition of chaos is energy policy. I warned this would happen. Though Australia seems to have learnt nothing. Now Germany is passing emergency laws to reopen mothballed coal-fired power plants for electricity generation ahead of winter. Italy's expected to do likewise. Germany, which under Merkel was to phase out coal by 2030, has a new government in coalition with the Greens and has said it will increase its use of coal to preserve energy supplies. The economic minister is a bloke called Robert Harbeck, a Greens MP in the coalition government. He said bringing back coal first power plants was, quote, painful, but, quote, a sheer necessity. We have this energy security board here, five years old, which is supposed to provide, quote, whole of system oversight for energy security. It's supposed to be designing a technology neutral capacity mechanism. Stupid language, isn't it? What that means is they're trying to lock in reliable power supply, knowing that renewables aren't reliable. And they've reported rejected demands, reportedly rejected demands that fossil fuels be excluded. They have argued here in Australia that essential coal and gas plants should not exit the power grid before replacement renewables and storage generation are in place. Well, I'll tell you something, that's a long way down the track. But now the rubber has hit the road. Energy prices worldwide are soaring, which means that Russia, with its oil and gas, are making a mozza. In other words, Europe is funding Russia and yet pretending to fight their invasion of Ukraine. That's how mad we've become on energy policy. Russia's budget surplus quadrupled in May compared to the same month a year ago. As I told you last week, this other crowd, the Australian energy market operator, I mean, all these outfits are not independent. They just take their brief from government. And as you know, up until the last election, the Coalition and Labor were singing from the same sheet of music on renewables and emissions. Well, this mob, the Australian energy market operator, said at the end of last month, that we were undergoing a, quote, complex, rapid and irreversible change to our energy system. They got that right. But then they said that the system would need a nine-fold increase in wind and solar capacity by 2050 to meet the nation's net zero emissions target. 
and that would be a complete understatement. During the election campaign, Anthony Albanese released a policy, Powering Australia, subheaded, Labor's plan to create jobs, cut power bills and reduce emissions by boosting renewable energy, unquote. Labor said their energy plan would create 604,000 jobs, five out of six in the regions and, quote, it will cut power bills for families and businesses by $275 for homes by 2025 compared to today. Well, have a look above you. You might see pigs flying backwards. You've got the fairly left-wing Grattan Institute telling us that the shift to net zero will be a second industrial revolution and that, quote, Australia's social fabric could tear if the jobs and economic losses in regional coal mining communities are not replaced. And stating the obvious, they say, quote, the decline of coal and gas is a big deal because we earn so much of our export revenue from these two sources the best part of $100 billion each year, unquote. Well, we're now told, and I warned of this long, long ago, that Australia's retail energy market, with prices going through the roof, will see companies fail and customers suffer. AGL has now confirmed tariff increases, price increases, for an average household of up to $298 a year in New South Wales come August 1. Albo's telling us his great energy plan will see electricity prices slashed. Well, reality tends to invade, doesn't it? AGL is raising power prices by about 18% in Queensland. Origin Energy has advised of increases as much as $388 or 18% in the ACT. Energy Australia says it will advise customers of increased prices in the coming weeks. Think what this means for cost of living and inflation. A group of 10 retailers has written to energy ministers, state and federal, to warn that the sector is in a dire situation as a result of soaring wholesale prices. The Australian Energy Regulator, another bureaucratic outfit, which proclaims it exists, quote, quote, to ensure energy consumers are better off now and in the future, huh, it's approved increases of up to 18% in New South Wales and 12% in Queensland from last week. We're now told Australia's energy policy, remember I've called it for years, a national economic suicide note. Well, as a result of Australia's self-sabotaging energy policy, widespread business closures are forecast. They can't handle skyrocketing energy costs. And businesses, employer groups and unions say companies face a dire choice between raising their prices or absorbing the higher costs of gas and electricity, and some will not survive. The Energy Users Association of Australia Chief Andrew Richards said they can bleed for a short period of time, but over a long period of time, they'll bleed to death, unquote. For the consumer, that means not just higher electricity prices, but they feed into everything you buy, processed food, fertiliser, building materials, and this is called energy policy. Orchestrated not by the voter or the taxpayer, but by politicians who've done no homework, explained nothing, no business model, and of course, sycophantic, woke businesses, which can't see the train wreck that's lying ahead. And we've got thousands of years of coal under our feet, stacks of gas, heaps of uranium. We should be an energy powerhouse and business should be on clover as a result of the cheapest energy prices in the world. Yet we are now in this self-defeating, disgraceful mess, which is called energy policy. Well, before we go, the wheels are falling off many state governments in this country. And you just heard me talk to Mark Latham, one is the New South Wales government. And someone said to me the other day, the Perrottet government handed down a budget big spending Labor would be proud of. And you heard Mark tell me that the Perrottet government broke its own Fiscal Responsibility Act. So disillusioned are Liberal voters they are looking at Chris Minns, who offers sensible Labor leadership and who seems to care about the struggles faced by families and workers. They think to themselves, I think I could cast a vote for this bloke. Now, although their hand may quiver over the ballot paper before voting Labor, they sure as hell aren't racing to the polling booths to vote for Matt Keane. Not only that, every second week it appears, there's an issue which the New South Wales government was warned about but failed to address as in the power shortages faced by many the other week on the East Coast, 
This was because New South Wales has a totally reckless energy minister like Matt Keane, who sledges coal and gas every second day. Why would any sensible operator, as I said many times in that industry, invest in coal or gas infrastructure? But then when there's a blackout, Keane foolishly comes out and says, oh, it's because of the derelict coal-fired power plants, which are now rust buckets. As I've said, this is because Keane has told coal investors they don't want it, while other countries are building high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power stations and using our coal to generate cheap energy. If there is an energy mess, it's one over which Matt Keane has presided. Then there are rail strikes, which leave thousands stranded on platforms or unable to travel to work. Then there's the woke New South Wales education system, presided over by a minister who's totally out of a depth. The New South Wales government seems to have run out of puff. Then you go north to the Palaszczuk government. The Queensland Premier had a convincing win two years ago, but that was because the LNP opposition were woeful. Palaszczuk received all the airtime, freezing out the opposition, a tactic used by Mark McGowan and that bloke in the Northern Territory who's no longer there. She was assisted too by an incompetent Queensland coalition. Well, thanks to a lot of investigative work by Peter Gleeson in Brisbane's Korea Mail, the LNP have cleaned out some of the dead wood, not all, but most of it. They're energised, especially with David Christofoli as their new leader. He'll be on the show tomorrow night because he has got something to say. The Queensland government handed down a ridiculous budget by Cameron Dick, the Treasurer, who betrayed Queenslanders by telling them prior to the election that no new taxes would be introduced, only to then introduce new taxes and raise others. That's called telling untruths. Then there's the integrity crisis, where some Labor MPs who are paid an extra $26,000 to sit on a committee failed to turn up to vote on a matter concerning a crime and corruption report into former Deputy Premier Jackie Trad. The punter would dub that a protection racket. Today, a poll by the Courier Mail reveals that if a state election were held today, more Queenslanders would vote for the LNP, 38%, than for Labor, 34%. And even preferences from the Greens would not deliver Labor into government. Last Thursday, Ms Palaszczuk confirmed to the Labor caucus that she intends to lead Labor into the next election, attempting to seek an historic fourth term. That, of course, is up to her. But I'll tell you what. Christopher Foley is turning this into a real contest, just as Labor leader Minns is in New South Wales. And I'll shortly look at the situation in Victoria, where, believe me, Andrews is in trouble. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.